from the birth of a child till we take our last breaths. Care accompanies our every waking moment, whether we know it or acknowledge it or we don't see it. Uh, we have uh, care in the form of nurses in hospitals, childcare workers, um, our family and friends may care for us. And we also care for our planet, for our gardens, for culture, for all kinds of things. Um, yet care somehow seems to be uh, both everywhere around us and also invisible. It has been starkly absent in, let's say, the American uh, presidential debates. Um, and it's also not something that we value and we talk about uh, on a daily basis. So uh, it was a great pleasure, therefore, to interview Madeleine Bunting, who has just, uh, her new book, Labors of Love, The Crisis of Care, has just been released. Um, and I had the great pleasure and opportunity to, to read it. And just a way of introduction, Madeleine is the author of several acclaimed works of non-fiction. And one of them is uh, Willing Slaves, How the Overwork Culture is Ruling Our Lives, which I also highly recommend. This has been a few years back uh, and it had also profound impact on me. Um, her other work includes Love of Country, A Hebridean Journey. This was also shortlisted for the Wainwright Golden Beer Book Prize and uh, another book, book award, The Plot, a biography of my father's English acre, which won the Portico Prize and was shortlisted for the Ondatia Prize. Um, she's also the author of the novel Island Song. Um, and so Madden joins me to discuss her new book, uh, Labors of Love, and uh, a number of very, very interesting uh, ideals, historical uh, facts about care and caregiving. Welcome to another episode of the Work Life Hub podcast. Each week we bring you an inspiring guest to help you discover the new world of work and learn how your organization can reach its full potential. Thank you for tuning in and spending some time with us today. To find out more about the Work Life Hub, please go to www.worklifehub.com. Well, thank you very, very much, Madeleine, for, for being on the podcast. It's a huge uh, honor for me, and, and I'm really having a bit of a fangirl moment here. And I really wanted to congratulate you on the book. And as a podcaster, it was actually very difficult to prepare for a podcast because there are you know five or six things on each page that I thought I could ask her about this, I could ask her about this and highlight this and highlight that. So it's so rich and very, very touching and beautifully written um, and actually has a lot of new insight on, on care, you know, things that I hadn't even considered. So we're going to get to those maybe later in the interview, but can I ask you what was the, the driving force behind the idea for you to write this book and, and how you set about researching it, which I, I know you've done for a number of years. Uh, it, it's it's funny how that's a question that, of course, since the book was published a month ago, I've been asked several times and there's sort of various answers I've, I've used. But I think I'm getting a clearer sense, actually. So I'm going to give you a, an even more honest answer, if you like. Um, and it's it's a funny thing about how, as you're writing a book, you're not entirely sure often what you're doing or why. And the process by which it becomes clear 
is strangely enough after publication as you get some perspective on it. So this is how I would frame what it was that was sort of driving me. And it was a very sort of instinctive uh, and quite, as I'm saying, quite sort of unarticulated. But I think we're at a, a very um, uh, precarious stage, really, in human history when um, the, the, the kind of enormous um, challenges that face us. Uh, and one of those is around our relationship with technology. And I think there's um, something at stake about what it is to be human uh, that is really, really sort of in play. I don't think we can ever be complacent about it. I mean, I have a great faith in kind of the inherent, inherent sort of capacities of humanity to, to sort of carry through. But I think what we're in danger of, look, of, of losing is a certain understandings of what it is to be human. That as computer technology and artificial intelligence becomes bigger and bigger in our lives, as it's doing in a way that we are often quite blind to, it's already determining many, many aspects of our interactions uh, and our lives. I think there's a, there's a danger that we lose um, various aspects of human character and, and behavior and there's a bit where I talk about George Orwell and 1984 and to me that was really you know that was something I landed on very early the point in 1984 which is of course kind of brilliantly prescient and has been endlessly kind of used as a way to kind of think about fu the future but the, the bit that's always struck me because I'm so interested in words and I'm a writer is Orwell's um, use of this idea of newspeak and in the story, for those of you who perhaps don't remember all the details, Newspeak is, is this literally new language that the authoritarian regime are making. And what that requires is a constant process of removing certain words uh, and creating and inventing new words. And what they're trying to do is strip out various understandings of what it is to be human. And when you no longer have the words to describe those human capabilities or human experiences, you no longer actually can even imagine them. So it's about the relationship between language and experience and how we need words to describe things. And the danger is that when we lose those words, we can no longer imagine them. And I think what, you know, to bring it right back to care, you know, I, I start, you know, my book is punctuated by this examination of words. And I think the word care is being sort of emptied of meaning. It's used in so many adverts uh, and it has been so so much become part of our consumer culture that that, you know, airlines will take care of us or, you know, stained eye will take care of our clothes. That, that we're losing something of this incredibly profound experience in care. We're losing uh, an, a, an understanding of that, that care becomes something very banal, you know, take care, we say, instead of say, goodbye. Um, so it, it becomes kind of meaningless, the term. So what I, part of what I'm trying to do is kind of wrench our focus back to saying that care is not just about this sort of tedious chore or this sense of duty or this burden, but it can actually be a profoundly transformational relationship 
um, and to remind us of the possibilities of that, because so often is care is seen as a problem. Care is seen as, oh, my God, you know, the care crisis, the care, the burden of the of our demographic ageing populations. Um, and to, to illustrate another way in which this word is getting corrupted, there was a fascinating question on, from a very distinguished broadcaster who said to me, well, care is just a service. You know, you just have to provide certain aspects like, you know, health care. I just want them to you know, stick the needle in the right place type of thing. Mm -hmm. And what I could see and I challenged her immediately about it. I said she, she said, you know, I just expect that kind of, you know, competence and, and skill. And she had turned care into a consumer experience. Yes. Um, and it had completely been commodified in her mind. And when I challenged her about this, she got very, very defensive. And then she said, no, 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 well, but let's, we'll cut all that. <laughs> um, so, so that's why I think care is sort of uh, under siege, if you like, from several different directions. A consumer culture in which, you know, people say, I just want what I want, when I want it, now. Um, and that kind of convenience and immediacy, that's how one writer just talks about our desire for speed. You know, I want to be able to you know, buy something off the internet and have it on my front doorstep a few hours later. Well, care is clearly never going to ever, ever be part of that obsession with convenience and speed. Um, so it's about a very, very different set of priorities, uh, which our culture is not good at encouraging or, or even talking about, such as patience, for example. Um, but but that 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 I think is 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 the kind of driving force behind the book, is to remind people about actually what is deep deeply buried in that in them. And you know I think care is an innate human quality, and we need to care, and we end up caring for you know many things. It, you know it could be relationships or it could be pets or it could be gardens. But you know that deep drive to nurture and and nourish the well-being of another living creature is absolutely hardwired into us but it can be obscured and we can forget that deep source of well-being that is generated by offering care mm. absolutely and i think um a lot of this the technology that is um taking up so much space you know the social networks and all these useless things that are shared on social networks. And I can say that with confidence because I have two teenagers um, really obscures the bigger picture uh, of, you know, it, it gives us a sense of, I don't know if it's dopamine or, or we're having, you know, it, the consumerism is giving us these um, quick fulfillments, but we then become very uncomfortable with the uncomfortable. You write about this, in the context of becoming a parent, you write about this in the context of nurses working in the hospitals that, um, you know, it's for us, it's to, to kind of go back and reckon with these difficult, challenging, but incredibly rewarding feelings of care is becoming pushed away somehow, right? We, we find, I, I went to a playground the other day with my smallest child and all the parents, there were also on their phones. Um, so it gives us this escape route from from maybe the burdensome aspect or the or the tedious or repetitive aspects of of care. Mm, yeah. So uh, yeah. yeah. Sorry, go on. Well, just just that you you know you're very, you're picking on a very kind of telling 
anecdote which is immediately familiar to all of us, I think, which is, you know, the adults on their mobile phones waiting for their children from the school. I mean, how many of us had to fill an awkward moment have picked up a phone rather than look like we've got nothing to do? I mean, what, you know, I mean, we've all done it. Uh, and I picked up a lot on the work of Sherry Turkle in my book towards the end, where she talks about how children and you know I think it's very significant you've got teenage children I have I think I think there's deep anxiety in many many parents of teenagers because we know the social media is particularly problematic for them in all kinds of ways it's a you know a very very particular part of their development when they're very sensitive to peer uh, opinion and peer pressure um as they try to kind of forge their own identity and they 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 are pulling away from their parents and social media piles into that syndrome. That's what it's building its commercial base in, that, that sort of peer pressure. But the problem is how it then removes uh, or inhibits the child's um, development of communication skills. That's what Sherry Turkle is so nervous about in her brilliant book, Alone Together, that we have a form of action through the, the technology but it's a very, um, very particular type of connection, which is, of course, very easy to interrupt or stop or break altogether. Whereas the connection of care is always that physical proximity. It's very, very real world. I mean, there are ways of caring online and I'm not disputing that, you know, various forms of support group and, you know, people who are isolated with with a certain medical condition can find huge support through the Internet. And there can be, you know, people can offer care in those different in in those in those ways but the bulk of care has to be about literally sharing the same space and touch is so important to so many parts of care um and i start my book with you know a wonderful anecdote that a philosopher of care gave me um where he described bathing uh, washing his daughter's hair and she was a you know small child and he was saying that through her embodied experience of touch, through her sense of touch, he was nurturing her ability. And she may have been three or something, you know, she was. But he knew that he was nurturing her ability to give care in the course of her life. So it's 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 you know, it, this is where it's really we, it's a relay race. You know, we we care and that nurtures the ability of the person we're caring for to offer care in turn. And, you know, the idea that this is embodied, we feel it. It's it's in the way someone pours the water over our hair when we're three. Um, you know, that we know as parents, Agnes, that you can pour the water very carefully to make sure it doesn't get in their eyes. And you can be sympathetic about whether this, you know, when they squeal because there's soap in their eyes, etc. So all these are embodied experiences of attention and trust and um, uh, and tenderness. Uh, and so I'm picking a very kind of routine very experience to just um, try and illustrate how um, that kind of routine experience carries huge emotional weight, actually, in our lives. You know, the, the real emotional um, significance, it lies in these little details, not not in the great sort of moments of sort of I love you I don't think I don't think that is really the point where we we feel loved where we feel loved is is in presence 
uh, and and touch and attention. I, I was talking once to a friend a long, long time ago, and he was re remembering with great affection his mother who died. And I can't remember why, but he, he said he has had this incredibly powerful memory of playing as a child uh, at her feet while she was ironing. And he said his sense of security and stability uh, was just, you know, enormous. He felt loved. Um, and, and that's why when we um, try and make care efficient, quote unquote, you know, I think the word efficiency, efficient is, is kind of in attention with care, because just to sort of take that experience of that little boy at the feet of his mother and the ironing board and then translate that into healthcare. What's happened in the UK, and I'm sure it's true in many other European countries, is that um, nurses job has got much, much more technical as healthcare has become more and more technical, requiring more and more diagnostic procedures with extraordinary and, and absolutely wonderful medical advances. But it means that the nurse, you know, what nurses said to me is they spend a huge amount of their time in front of a screen at the nurse's desk, tap, tap, tapping away on the computer, trying to find out what tests have been done, what tests needs to be done, where are the results, when they're going to be back. One one report in the UK described it as um, the nurse's role as managing the care pathway. I mean, how distant can you get? And then what's relegated to much less well-trained healthcare assistants, they're called in the UK, is the quote unquote basic care of feeding and washing um, and changing bedclothes. Um, and, and that sort of bifurcation of the of the kind of technical side of healthcare and the the kind of basic as it's called, uh, I think is is problematic. It's not just me that says that. There's plenty plenty of other nurses who say the point about the feeding and the washing is that is when you gain a real insight into the physical and mental health of your patient. You know, are they are they cheerful or are they getting depressed or demoralised? Can you reassure them through the communication in the course of those activities? It, it's a it's a it's a kind of huge part of the experience of the patient in the hospital. Um, and that has it has got obscured. You know, we've become obsessed with, you know, will the surgeon do that miracle work and remove the tumour? But all around that is the is the is the emotional journey of being in a hospital and being very scared and, and who is actually looking after you. Absolutely. There there was um um a book uh, in in uh, from a Belgian uh, consultant author uh, Frederic Laloux, um, which he speaks about democratic and and free organizations and and there was a very poignant example from the Netherlands where these visiting nurses they had their work so made so efficient you know that they had their GPSs yeah. they had their Google yeah. Maps they they knew exactly so they had these uh, routes they had to go from house to house and just go in there give a quick injection come out 15 minutes you're on your way going to the next house and the, a number of these nurses were feeling that their work was no more no, no longer dignified to the vocation that it wasn't that they couldn't do it in this business model anymore so they went and, and created this organization called Burzorg. Ah, uh, yes, yes. Yeah, yes. you've probably heard yes. of it yes. because 
they said that actually it's when you go into the house of that elderly or ill person and you sit down for a tea and discuss and you know how you're feeling today did you do your shopping is that they realize that a lot of these older people and, and ill people then when they were put on this efficient uh, you know belt uh, they ended up so anxious yeah. that for any you know small things they, they preferred then to go to the ER and yeah. overburdening yeah. that system yeah yeah Whereas Bursov said, okay, who is around you? Who is a neighbor? Who could, you know, come and, and spend time with you? So they really took care of of the the human aspect, that human experience, and not so much the medical transactional, you know, which uh, you totally described this in your, in that chapter on nursing, that, you know, when somebody is anxious and somebody else to come and to sit down and listen to them you know, talk about their anxieties or fears and just a touch uh, on the hand can reassure somebody. I think that's so powerful, incredibly powerful. Um, uh, absolutely. And uh, uh, on the radio, when I was launching my book a month ago, there was a, a UK project that was a bit like the Vietzog project you mentioned, um, where they'd managed to reduce um, admission to what the UK calls A&E, your you, was, you said it's called ER, um, you know, same thing, you know, emergency hospital admission by 20% through a project which mobilised volunteers in a sort of befriending scheme. Um, and uh, and with the involvement of the doctors and, and nurses. So it was a sort of, you know, joining up the kind of healthcare with with volunteers. Um, fascinating project, because what, what it reminds us of is that um, you know, our mental and physical health are so interrelated. And um, if we just treat the physical side, uh, then, you know, we're going to come unstuck and we're going to have healthcare systems that are completely overloaded. Uh, so, you know, I, I think Birdsog is an absolutely fascinating model. Um, and I just, you know, it's been known about in the UK for, for quite a while. And I just disappointed that there hasn't been more take up, uh, you know, more kind of UK um um, um, you know, programs that have been modeled on that basis, because it's very, very inspiring. Absolutely. And one more thing I wanted to ask you is, is this contradiction, uh, and, and you already alluded to it, that care is basically all around us in our everyday little acts or gestures or touches or, or phone calls or words or, or even the larger ones. However, it is still somehow invisible. Uh, one of your, uh, one of the, the people you interview uh, in the book, she likens it to the dark matter, <laughs> which is yeah. around us, 80% of the universe, yet invisible. And I was also struck because I was reading your book during the presidential elections in the US, the last stages, and I was struck how much childcare, paid family leave, all of this was absent from the political discourse and it's it's also you know n never really on the forefront uh, for this so what is your take on this contradiction that is that is around us that is still somehow invisible that we try not to think about it but mm, wondering <laughs> yes so sort of big question there yes yes <laughs> sorry about uh, that 
you know, but 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 a good question. Um, there's the, the you know the, you know that great joke where um, two fish are, are swimming in the sea and one fish says to the other, "Where's the water?" <laughs> you know, <laughs> have you ever heard that joke? Um, there's a kind of way in which you know the the joke is is quite kind of suitable for this subject because you know it's all around us. We utterly rely on it, and we're not aware, not nearly aware enough of it. Um, I think this has deep historical roots, and that's that's really the argument of the book, and that's what I try and trace over sort of centuries. Uh, I mean, the uh, feminist economist Nancy Folber, whom I quote, um, you know, just has a wonderfully succinct way of summing it up, which is that patriarchy was 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 built to ensure the supply of free care. That you know, it, it, it it's not an accident that care. Uh, it has been, you know, been an essential part of the woman's role. That enormous processes of socialization bore down on women to provide care. And I'm not just talking about having children, which some people would say, you know, it's biological, etc. Of course not. Women were expected to look after the elderly. They were expected to look after sick relatives. Their role was very explicitly to meet the care needs of all those around them, all of them, and um, and and of course meet the care needs of men. So, you know, providing food, washing their clothes, et cetera, et cetera. So I think one of the ways in which this had to be that, that you know, it kind of, first of all, the entire Western intellectual tradition, largely written and uh, uh, by men, uh, completely ignored this experience, this sphere of experience, because they had so, you know, they'd been grown up, they'd been sort of socialised themselves to a sense of entitlement, that this was natural, quote unquote, this is normal. So care does not appear as a major subject in philosophy, economics, um, uh, political theories, um, nor indeed even literature. I mean, that was one of the other things that I was curious about, is that, you know, someone like Jane Austen, who's such a wonderful, wonderful novelist, and yet, uh, and she was not married, right? So unmarried women were particularly expected to provide care. That's, you know, they were totally free and available, and therefore they could be assigned to any elderly relative as a companion or or, uh, or whatever. Uh, and Jane Austen uh, would therefore have had plenty. I mean, we know from her biography, she had plenty of experience of offering care, providing care. And yet at no point in her novels does she ever refer to it or talk about it. There's this curious kind of absence. What she talks about is marriage and romance and how people do and don't find husbands. But she doesn't talk about what actually happens after they've found their husbands and how their lives become dominated by care. So it's it's one of those strange subjects which people um, either uh, didn't think was interesting. I mean, I you know, what would Jane Austen say if you asked her why she hadn't written about it? Um, is it because it's not interesting or because um, uh, men are, uh, want to maintain a status quo, do not want it challenged or questioned? So the invisibility of care has been written into our culture in a very, very kind of embedded way. And I think what happened in the 60s and 70s as new as, as sort of waves of feminism began to question this. Um, and I loved the work of Miele Uke Landersman, an American artist who basically moved into a gallery in the, the late 60s and said, OK, my my artwork is my 
is my domestic life. And she started mopping the floors and doing the washing up and 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 so forth in the art gallery. And for the last 50 years, she's been again and again kind of challenging what is care and arguing that care is a work of art, that care is, you know, a deeply creative, imaginative act which sustains uh, human well-being. And I, I, I just, you know, I think she's a, she's a sort of wonderfully bold and anarchic figure who's kind of got lots of people thinking again. It, you know, she did a wonderful piece of work where she she became the artist in residence, self-appointed, of the New York Sanitation Department. And over the course of yeah, it's great, isn't it? And over the course of two years, she shook the hands of every single sanitation worker to say thank you. Well, I mean, she's absolutely right, isn't she? And, you know, in COVID times, we've been doing the equivalent. We've been saying thank you to all the key workers whose work essentially keeps us fed, keeps our, you know, streets clean, uh, et cetera, keeps the buses running. So um, it, it, it's, it's like a massive paradigm shift that our culture needs to, to, to orientate ourselves towards a care ethic and I think it's you know we've had a cultures over the last sort of five six hundred years which have been orientated around a work ethic and I think we're at this extraordinary moment where there's a number of of kind of crises uh, that require us to turn towards a care ethic and the environment of clearly is one of them you know we need to care for our environment in a way that is you know, we're still proving, you know, kind of lamentably slow to get our heads around because it's so fundamental to our well-being as, as a human species. Um, and I would say that, that you know, it's that, that not far behind that is this crisis around human relationship and connection. Um, and, you know, we have an epidemic of loneliness, as it's often described. Um, and you know, knowing how we provide care for each other uh, is is um, a profoundly different uh, perspective because there's so much in our capitalist culture which is about extraction and and actually forms of exploitation. What concerns though do for me? You know, how can I offer X in return for Y? These are transactional forms of relationship and they have crept into intimate relationships as well. Um, in a way that that I think is is kind of tragic, actually. You know, and you hear people discussing romantic relationship, and it, they're seeing it as a transaction. You know, so and so does X for me, and I do Y for them. Um, and that seems to me to be uh, forestalling the the option of a real human to human contact, uh, which is much more vulnerable and much more honest, um, and is about intimacy. Yeah, and this points to, you know, the same thing that you say about the environment, that we're taking it for granted. So we're not even thinking about that, that I would like, you know, if if I'm having a fever, I would like someone to put their cool hand on my forehead or, you know, it's not that I want to go on luscious trips or whatever. And it's the same with with the planet and, and taking childcare workers for granted, not thinking about their the risk they're taking now for example or teachers or because we we think that there's an endless supply of it and that's and, right and, and that's it's right. there and it's always there and it, we we don't really need to invest just the way we invest in stakeholder relationships let's say or shareholder relationships yeah uh, yeah 
and and you're you're dead right you know the, the assumption is that there'll, there'll always be you know carers around well you know the, when you look at the history in, in the uk i don't know about belgium but actually britain hasn't produced it you know a workforce for its own care jobs for decades so we've imported them from ireland uh the african uh, caribbean community we you know imported them from the caribbean and now we're importing them from eastern europe and uh you know parts of asia so we've relied on other cultures appreciation and recognition of the significance of care to subsidize our own culture um which i find extraordinary really and that's been going on for for a long time um and of course you know with 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 brexit uh, our government has been explicit that you know it won't be possible to come and work in care jobs because they're too low paid so if it, you know we're kind of walking we're sort of blindfold walking in the uk into a set of really challenging issues we have 120,000 vacancies in care work that's care social care which is care of the elderly or care of disabled people who this you know has become within state criteria that need support and help and there's 120,000 vacancies out of a workforce of about a million. So that's about 10% vacancies. And from January, nobody from Eastern Europe will be able to come and take those jobs anymore. Well, there's already significant numbers of Eastern Europeans that have been doing those jobs. They've been propping up the system. So, mm. you know, I, what, what I kind of wonder, and I know there is apparently some government review in the UK, but, you know, where where is the really kind of, far-sighted looking ahead thinking okay how do we do this uh, how do we ensure that people leaving school think that care work is a really good job option um, and it's to do with much better pay i mean our child care workers are paid appallingly chronic yeah. low pay um, you can get more money in a supermarket in the uk than, than yes. you can in a childcare uh, nursery um, which is kind of crazy. Why Why do we pay people who sit at a checkout till at the supermarket more than people who are looking after our most loved sacred little babies? You know, yeah, I know it just it just doesn't it doesn't make sense. And uh, surely childcare is such it's a, it's a job which requires such skill and um, has such profound effects on the life chances of children. You know, good quality childcare. We know from study after study, it's not like we don't know. They've done the research for decades. We know what enormous benefits it brings to children long term over their lives. Um, for precisely the reason where we, you know, we were discussing earlier that a child at three experiences things that will last their lifetime. And if your childcare worker is patient and attentive and kindly, you know, that is laying down foundations for that child's life. Hmm, absolutely. Um, now, I have a thousand more questions, um, Madeleine, but time <laughs> is really, really going way too quickly here. Um, so I just want to encourage everyone to to read the book because it's, um, it's, it's really a fantastic insight and, and a wake-up call to, to what needs to, to be taken much, much more seriously I think by individuals, by employers, by governments, by local government. Um, so would you mind sharing with the listeners uh, where they can find the book, where they can find out more about your work? Yes. So so I have a website, uh, www.madelinebunting.com. 
um, and you can see all my past works there, my uh, and my works, um, my books coming that are coming up, being about to be published. Um, the uh, there are many, many different ways of buying the book, of course. Um, lots and lots of bookshops are stocking it. Um, Waterstones in the UK uh, and, uh, of course, uh, Amazon, although it would be great if you found an alternative to Amazon. But uh, it's, it's, it is on sale on Amazon. Thank you very much. Um, another final question. Um, you know, looking ahead, um, if you could think maybe or one or two um, things that need to change or one or two um, actions that either government or businesses or individuals can take that you, you find are, are you know, the most pressing ones uh, where you thought during the book, you, you know, writing or researching that this has to happen now, we need to do this. What, what is your take on, on the next step? that needs to happen okay, okay well if i go into total fantasy land right yes <laughs> um, I, I would i would say that there needs to be a really big signal from the top that this reorientation towards a care ethic from the top of our society right down to the bottom and i would i would i would want a government to put forward a manifesto in which they put care right at the heart of what our society is about and covid has made that so so clear it would have many, many dimensions to it, one of which would be a better pay deal, a new deal for people working in care so that they are getting paid properly. They have proper terms and conditions uh, around sick pay and around holidays. We know we can't afford in COVID times, we can't afford people not to have the possibility of sick pay. So it's time for a new deal for care workers. But I would really want a government to have the vision to be able to link up different areas. It's not just about low pay. It's not just about nursing education and how nurses work. It's right across the board. So I would want all school leavers to spend three months, two months in some voluntary op uh, uh, activity, which is about care. And they can choose what kind of care whether it's gardening or um, uh, cleaning graffiti or um, a care or a care home, uh, but to have it mentored so that they understand this isn't just some tedious, boring old thing, but this is about how you grow as a person, how you come into a maturity. It's part of how you reach adulthood, that offering care is part of being an adult. And it's a very satisfying and very often very challenging part of that experience of growing up um, and uh, part of this may seem like sort of fantasy land but actually there's some really really unexpected voices beginning to emerge who are saying care is going to be a really significant form of employment because it's not going to be affected by automation to anything like the same extent that many other jobs will so investing in human relationship will become the major priority of many western uh, um, countries. Not We have been preoccupied for the last centuries with wealth creation, and that will continue to be important. But alongside that will be investment in human relationship, because the, the levels of mental ill health and loneliness are, are, are shocking and they're rising. So we're going to we're going to have to become more aware of the importance of how we sustain and nurture human well-being. Uh, so I would, you know, and, and that was the chief economist for the Bank of England who said, you know, the future is about, our future of employment 
will be care will have a disproportionately significant role to play. We need to completely revise our understanding of care, not as the lowest paid job, the lowest status job, but actually as a, you know, the rewarding, enormously uh, valuable work it is. Um, and in many ways, COVID is pushing that forward for us. You know, we in the UK were clapping on our doorsteps and uh, for, for the nurses and the key workers who were keeping us all going. Um, so I think we've really had, you know, a kind of taking stock moment where we're like, wow, you know, the reason that I'm able to to survive right now is because loads of people are continuing to go out to work uh, at risk to themselves and, you know, the nurses in the hospitals, etc. Mm, absolutely. Um, thank you so much for this. Um, I'm happy that we were able to close the conversation in a very positive note. Uh, and having, you know, having, having the, the way forward somehow still, you know, um, imagine, yeah. Um, yeah. and, and not in, you know, not despairing about, um, what is, but, but looking at what can be. And, and I'm, I, you know, I'm absolutely convinced that, you know, we cannot let this good crisis be to waste yeah. And, yeah. and not use it, you know, uh, and, and I think, as you say, it's, it's pushing uh, us uh, hopefully in the right direction with a number of these issues. So thank you once again, Madeleine, for, for ex accepting the invitation to come on the podcast and speak about your book. And, I, you know, I want to urge listeners to, to go out and buy it and read it um, and wish you lots of success uh, with this book, but also with, with your other work. Thank you. Thank you, Agnes. Thank you very much for taking the time and listen to this conversation with Madeleine Ponting. Um, I'm sure you were just as inspired as I was, and I could have actually listened to her for hours and hours. Uh, but really, the idea here is that you, you read her book because it's full of insights and stories and very touching personal anecdotes, but also hard facts and, and, and literature reviews. So it's, it's, it's really a very impressive piece of work and if you are interested in other um, authors or experts who are also working on the issues of care, work-life balance, work-life integration, then do not hesitate to go on worklifehub.com where we have all our other uh, podcasts, about 140 episodes, where I'm sure you will be able to find your next listen. So thanks again and take care.